The sermon this morning is entitled, as you can see in the bulletin, The First Love, The Sweetness and Excellence of Christ. The First Love, The Sweetness and Excellence of Christ, as I've already indicated, it is a reference to Revelation chapter 2 and the letter from the Lord Christ Himself to the Christians for the church of Ephesus. I want to just sort of make a little comment before I begin this morning, and then we're going to pray and plead with God in regard to the sermon once more. We have on our website a little thing you click on that uh, says there are seven special sermons that we think that would be helpful for you to hear. If you were to visit our church and maybe you don't know who we are, you can go there and click on these seven sermons and um, we think they would be helpful. From time to time, the elders make a comment that they think that another sermon might be a good sermon to add to that list or maybe to replace something that's already on there. And I want to say this very clearly. I rejoice that the elders are discerning enough that they don't make that comment every Sunday. It doesn't mean that the word hasn't been preached, but sometimes they discern that something has gone forth here that might be of a particular help both to us and to not only our congregation, but perhaps others who visit. I want to say this. I can't think of a more important subject to go on that website than what I'm preaching about today. I don't know that it will go on the website for that reason. But I want to encourage you to pray now with me that this would not bounce off of us. If you've been in church any length of time in your life, you have heard preaching on the statement you've lost your first love. But I was just struck by the quote that Brother Steve gave from Jonathan Edwards about the people in hell, that none, none, none of them thought they would end up there. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we acknowledge this to be your word. God, we are perhaps in some ways almost like Solomon in that we recognize there is a great need in our lives as you came to him and offered him anything. And you gave him enough discernment to know that it was wisdom that he needed to be king of Israel. God, most of us this morning have some discernment that indeed we have lost our first love and might have enough sense to recognize that And yet, God, we are immersed, as you well know, in a culture of the visible church upon which this truth has been altogether lost with only a tiny remnant, with understanding. And so we pray, God, that uh, while on others' Thou art calling. Do not pass me by. God, give us ears to hear. Grant us repentance. Grant us the ability to see the individual application of this to our lives. And then grant us holy change by the power of you, our good God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Will you stand to honor the reading of God's word? In Revelation, we're in chapter 2, but once again, to put it in context, we will start at verse 9 of chapter 1. Revelation 
chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore write these things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent And do the deeds you did at first, for else I am coming to you, and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Amen. Please be seated. It seems rather obvious to me as we have divided this letter up into two sections, one about the commendations which we looked at last week, and today uh, the uh, exhortation, the warning, the rebuke, if you will. It seems rather obvious to me that there's a critical thing here, and that is, what is the first love? But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. There are several examples in Scripture that give us a beautiful demonstration of a first love. Of course, a first love, as the Lord Christ speaks of it here in Revelation chapter 2, is salvation. 
It is the salvation of a soul by the power of God, where the heart has been melted from stone, and now they are filled with holy affections for the Creator and the Redeemer. It is not mere orthodox theology that understands what I just said. It is someone who has experienced what I just said. A first love is God himself reaching into the heart of someone and grabbing them. There are pictures of it in Scripture, two that jump to mind very quickly that I encourage you to become very familiar with. Some of you already are. One is found in Mark chapter 5. It's the gathering demoniac. You need not turn to it now, but I encourage you to turn to it and learn that. It is the man who is out of his mind. He is more powerful than most. He lives among dead people. He's hurting others and hurting himself. He will not be controlled or restrained, and he doesn't even wear any clothes. He is out of his mind, possessed by the devil and all that the devil has. And when he sees Christ, he runs toward him. Just one of the most remarkable demonstrations in Scripture of God laying hold of him. His most natural reaction would be to run from God. But he runs toward Christ and throws himself down at his feet. Most of us are familiar with that passage and we understand that the result is that Christ throws out the demons and adopts him as one of his own. And he is then seated and clothed, and in his right mind. He's now feeding upon every word Christ offers. Christ tells him something to do, he does it. He's told at the end of that chapter, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you, and how he had compassion on your soul. And the Bible tells us that he went not to one city, but to ten cities and told them in obedience to God. He demonstrates beautifully the first love of a believer. And perhaps in the same way we see other illustrations, John chapter 9, the blind man that when he is healed, he goes walking and leaping and praising God. He's so delighted of what he sees. And there are other examples of scripture as well. We think of Luke 18 and the publican and the Pharisee. And the publican comes, and he is unwilling to lift up his eyes toward heaven, but beating his breast cries out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And the Lord Christ says that that man went home to his house justified, meaning saved, meaning converted, born again, delivered, redeemed, He was blind and now he sees. You cannot understand verse 5. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent. You cannot understand verse 4. But I have this against you that you've left your first love unless you understand the first love. Unless you understand that large numbers of evangelicals and reformed people today have some comprehension of the gospel and are not converted. They don't know what it means to find your first love again because they never had it to begin with. They only knew it was probably true and they understood that God was coming as the giant cosmic fly swatter and they were rightly afraid. But they were never converted. That is not to whom Christ is speaking in this letter. He is speaking to believers. He is saying to you, you've lost your first love. And he is saying, I am your first love. I was your first love. I should be your first love. For anyone who is in Christ Jesus, they understand something of the humble beginnings of how they came to Christ. If you don't know anything about the humble beginnings of how you came to Christ, you probably didn't come to Christ. 
King David is the youngest of eight sons. And when God decides to choose his own king to replace Saul, he sends his prophet and tells his prophet Samuel, I will tell you who it is. You just go where I tell you to go. I'm going to tell you who it is. And he sends him to Jesse's house. And so he goes to Jesse's house. And Jesse brings out his seven older sons and doesn't even think to bring young David. That's humble beginnings. And each one of them is passed before Samuel. And Samuel says, Samuel's first thought is this is the one because they look, they look good. They look strong. Their outward appearances may be even noble. We might say presidential. But he says, no, not any of these. Even to the point that Samuel is vexed and he says, well, do you have any other sons? Assuming that surely Samuel has brought all of his sons. And Samuel says, well, there is one more. If you're converted this morning, you're that one more. You're that one more that nobody else was even thinking about. And God says, we will not sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb until you go get him. We come from humble beginnings. David comes in, still smelling like a sheep. Samuel sees him, puts him down on his knees, pours oil on his head and declares him to be, hear this, the father of the Messiah. That's what he does. He declares him to be king of Israel, and he's going to be the father of the Messiah. David comes from humble beginnings, and he loves God. He has a first love that causes him to write most of the Psalms. And in those Psalms, we see again and again and again through every circumstance how David loves God. Look in your Bible. I'm sorry, look in your bulletin. Look in your bulletin on the front of that. That quote, it was there last week, but let's look at it again. As it was at the time of the Reformation when the watchword was ad fontes, back to the sources. So it is now. The way forward is backward. We need to go back to the spiritual classics of evangelicalism to find the pathway forward. Let me insert something there. We need to go back to times in which the Holy Spirit was manifesting himself and godliness was present and right and holy worship was occurring. We need to go back and look at that and see what it's like and cry out to God for that rather than trying to fabricate it today. We cannot live in the past. To attempt to do so would be antiquarianism. But through their writings, our evangelical forebearers in the faith can teach us much about Christianity, its doctrines, its passions, and its fruit, as they can serve as role models for us. As R.C. Sproul has noted of such giants as Augustine and Martin Luther, John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards, these men, you could add King David, these men all were conquered overwhelmed and spiritually intoxicated by their vision of the holiness of God. Their minds and imaginations were captured by the majesty of God the Father. That's salvation, by the way. Each of them possessed a profound affection for the sweetness and excellence of Christ. There was in each of them a singular and unswerving loyalty to Christ that spoke of a citizenship in heaven that was always more precious to them than the applause of men. Well, later on, King David went into the tabernacle, went into the tabernacle and sat down, it says, in 1 Samuel, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 7, it says this, that he went in and sat down before God and said this to him, to God, Who am I, and what is my family, that you have brought me this far? At that point, David is still remembering his first love. Who am I, and what is my family, that you have brought me this far? He's now been king for some time, and he's delighting in his good God. Is that your heart this morning? Are you still remembering those humble beginnings? Are you still mindful 
of the work of God, that if it were not for the work of God, you would not be here this morning. If it were not for the work of God, you would not have come the first time. If it were not for the work of God, you would not still be walking with God. Who am I and what is my house that you brought me this far, David says. A first love is one that says, I want to know you more. It is a love that is fascinated, intoxicated, it said here in the quote. Fascinated with the object of the love and wants to know more and more and more about that object, which is Christ. There is a catalog of praise in the Bible. I've mentioned it to you before. And I commend it to you again this day. It's Psalm 103 to Psalm 107. Psalm 103 to 107 is where David is writing, and he's just writing a litany of things to praise the Almighty about, things to be thankful for, things about his nature and attributes, about his goodness, about his faithfulness. And all through the Psalms, you recognize that David is mindful that it is God and God alone that is responsible for every blessing that he has. It is God and God alone that has drawn him to worship. It is God and God alone that continues to draw him to worship. Charles Spurgeon had a similar experience to that. This is what he said. Psalm 66 begins this way. Come in here, all you who fear God, and I will declare what he has done for my soul. And Charles Spurgeon finished it by saying this. He has turned my mourning into laughter and my desolation into joy. He has led my captivity captive and made my heart rejoice with unspeakable joy and full of glory. He drew me when I struggled to escape from his grace. If you don't know, that's you. I'm gravely concerned about whether or not you're converted. He drew me when I struggled to escape from his grace. And when at last I came all trembling like a condemned culprit to his mercy seat, he said, Thy sins, which are many, are all forgiven thee. Be of good cheer. I bear witness that never servant had such a master as I have, never brother such a kinsman as he has been to me, never spouse such a husband as Christ has been to my soul, never sinner a better Savior, never mourner a better comforter than Christ has been to my spirit. I want none beside him. In life he is my life, and in death he shall be the death of death. In poverty, Christ is my riches. In sickness, he is my bed. In darkness, he is my star. And in brightness, he is my sun. Charles Spurgeon knew what it meant to have a first love. David knew what it meant to have a first love. If you're converted you can remember without a lot of prodding what it was like to have a first love. How everything else just pales by comparison. Everything else is put in perspective to that. And Christ comes this morning through the preaching of God's word and through the written word recorded in Revelation chapter 2 verse 4 and says, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. A first love brings a heightened awareness of sin. A first love brings a heightened awareness of sin. We are mindful of how dull we are toward God and how much denial we have toward our own sin. But then a first love brings us to the awareness of our condition. It awakens us to the dullness of our dutiful obligations toward God. It awakens us to the breadth, the height, and depth of God's standards and holiness and of the blessings of God. And we see how far fallen we are. There is a heightened awareness of sin. This morning, are you dull and in denial about your sin? Or are you convicted and in awe as you're honest before God regarding your unworthiness when you came to Christ and your unworthiness this morning. The Sermon on the Mount is intended to help us understand something about this dullness that we have. Our tendency is to think of God's standards in a lower, more compromised position so that we look better when we compare ourselves. 
And the Bible over and over and over again, not only with the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, as well as in Romans 3 and many other places, strives very clearly and successfully, because it is written by God, to clarify just exactly what God's standards are. And so we need the work of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to that, that we might see our desperate need of the Savior. And denial. This is a remarkable thing, because Reformed and Evangelical Christians are full of excuses as to why they are the way they are. We have bought into so much gibberish from the world of psychology and psychiatry that we now have a reason for everything we do rather than I'm a black-hearted, rebellious sinner. I am ungrateful. I am focused on myself and not on God. I am ignorant of God and ignorant of his ways. We have lots of excuses in the modern evangelical and reformed churches. But I want you to hear this, brothers and sisters. There is, you are not to take any comfort in large numbers of others like you. And there are large numbers of evangelical and reformed Christians today, in the year 2012, who have bought into every manner of excuse as to why they are the way they are. Why they're not more godly. Why they're still remaining in sin. Why they're still struggling in so many ways that they're struggling in. Why they're so evident that they've lost their first love. Brothers and sisters, large numbers will be lost forever. Large numbers will be lost forever. It is not the majority of mankind that will be saved. It is a remnant. Large numbers will be lost forever. When we come to this reality that you've lost your first love, the Lord Christ says, and who is it that's speaking? Well, we just read it. It's in the second part of chapter 1 of Revelation. It is the God of God, light of light, very God of very God. He is speaking and he says, I know your hearts and you have lost your first love. Well, what does it actually manifest? How does it manifest itself? Listen to this. Write this down. Remember this. It manifests itself in three ways. An indifference toward God. An indifference toward God. Familiarity breeds contempt. An indifference toward God. A neglect of his persons. And the unfathomable danger of wandering near danger and not recognizing it. Listen to it again. It is the indifference toward God. A loss of first love is indifference toward God. It is the neglect of his persons. God is not a set of pool rules. He is not merely holy himself. He is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if he redeems someone, he calls them, I will be your God and you shall be my people. Come and fellowship with me. Spend time with me, he says. And that indifference is reflected every day and most especially toward our attitudes toward the Lord's day. Indifference toward God, neglect of his persons, and the unfathomable danger of being near danger and not recognizing it. Christ here sees that the people in Ephesus are near danger and he is good enough to give them this very clear warning. God, knowing everything, Psalm 139, says, I know where this is going. I know what you're doing right now. I know what's going on. I know this coldness that you're experiencing. I know where this leads. And he calls us to repentance and warns us sternly. Brothers and sisters, I mentioned to you on many occasions that our hearts are naturally sliding all the time. And they slide away from God. Our hearts are naturally sliding all the time and they slide away. And here the Lord Christ comes and brings to our attention just how far away many of us have slid this morning. Let me make an obvious statement that would be worthy of you reflecting upon this day. Blindness means you can't see it. Blindness means you can't see it. And so therefore we want to be pleading with God and perhaps pleading with the head of our household 
for wisdom and guidance about the coldness of heart that maybe is quite obvious to others in our own lives and pleading with God in our prayer closets in that regard. Well, I said it manifests itself in three ways, this loss of first love, indifference toward God, neglect of his persons, and the unfathomable danger of being near danger and not recognizing it or not caring. Indifference toward God is the reality that you have just simply, your surprise fades, your joy and gratitude fade. David is out with the sheep, totally, thoroughly unexpecting any blessing of any nature whatsoever. He is called in in front of his brothers, and he is anointed king over Israel and given the high, holy, unspeakable, eternal privilege of being the father of the Messiah. And he is surprised, he is joyful, and he is full of gratitude for quite a while. And then there's the Bathsheba incident. Then there's the Bathsheba incident, indicating that he has lost his first love. He once had it. He once walked with God with great surprise, if you will, and joy and thanksgiving and gratitude. And then he walked away from it. The Bible says this, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the children of God. Every time you hear that, it should take your breath away. When you look around and see the millions and millions and billions of people who are not the children of God, and those who are in Christ can say with confidence, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the children of God. Familiarity breeds contempt in our indifference toward God, and contempt is the opposite of treasuring. Contempt is the opposite of treasuring. When a young man today, this is a, this is a very popular thing today, it has been for some time, but now it's just standard fare. Men used to propose to women, and they would often pull the ring out and actually give them the ring nowadays. That won't do. The young lady wants to see the box. The whole concept is that it's in a box, and the whole concept of the box is that you're treasuring. You're treasuring this ring, and you're putting this ring in its best possible presentation when you present it. Treasuring something that you have, whether it's maybe framing a picture that you have at home, or something that you have high on a shelf that no one ever touches. Something that's treasured. Contempt is the opposite of treasuring. Let me encourage you in that regard that fasting may be of some assistance to you in that regard. Fasting may be of some assistance to you as you cry out to God about losing a first love. There are many hymns that talk about first love and the great value and the unspeakable joy of first love. You've heard me quote one of my favorites. I learned it when I was in high school, and I learned every stanza of it. Praise my soul, the King of heaven. To his feet thy tribute bring. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Who like me his praise should sing. Learning hymns and reflecting upon the glorious truths of them. And can it be, Charles Wesley wrote, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, who him to death pursued? Reflecting upon these things. In your hymnal is a hymn by uh, Horatius Bonar. When this passing world is done. I think it's Horatius Bonar remarkable hymn about I won't know until I get to the actual gates of heaven and see the destruction of the wicked just how great a debt I owe. Reflecting upon it is critical to head off the indifference that we have toward God. The neglect of his persons is the second one. The neglect of his persons is the neglect of praise and prayer focused on persons and not simply truths. Listen to that again. Neglect of his persons is the neglect of praise and prayer that is focused on the persons of God and not merely on the truths of God. Many Christians today are focused on the truths of God and not on the persons of God. 
But King David understood as you read the Psalms, King David, like this bulletin quote we have here, was intoxicated. His passions were driven by the reality that God knew him and loved him personally and was governing and guiding his life. And for all who are in Christ, we can say the same. Praise and prayer, brothers and sisters, is a litmus test for us. Charles Spurgeon said there are two times that we should be earnest in prayer. There are two times when we should be earnest in prayer. The first time is when you feel like praying because it would be a shame to waste such an opportunity. When you have a desire to pray that you would absolutely recognize that as a gift from God and call out to God and pray to Him, we should not waste that opportunity. He said that's one of the times we should pray. The other time is when you don't feel like praying because how dreadful it would be to remain in that condition. Praise and prayer are litmus tests as to where our first love is and where our heart is. And the Psalms help us greatly in that regard. Brothers and sisters, I have said to you before, I was uh, probably about 30 years old before I discovered the book of Psalms. I was about 30 years old before I discovered the book of Psalms. I knew it. I read it. It was in the Bible, so I read it. But it meant almost nothing to me. It was more obscure to me than Shakespeare. And then God probably converted me. I think that's probably what happened. And God just opened my heart to the glories of this relationship that the psalmist has, mostly David, but there are other psalmists, that these psalmists have, and how they now know and love God, how overwhelmed they are at God, of not only His love for them in the gospel, but His goodness, His greatness, His wisdom, His power, His suitability to rule and reign over all his creatures. David, in the Psalms, is in full agreement that God should be his master. The third area, not only the indifference that we have toward God or neglect of his persons, the third area of losing your first love is the unfathomable danger of being near danger and not knowing it and not caring. If that doesn't mark the modern church, I don't know what does. The unfathomable danger of being near danger and not knowing or not caring. I told you that there's a book called, by William Gurnall, called The Christian in Complete Armor. And in that book, it's either that book or Thomas Brooks' book on precious remedies against Satan's devices. One of those two books, I think it's Gurnall's book, that talks about that a dove trembles at the sight of a hawk's feather. He doesn't have to see the hawk. He just sees the hawk's feather and he trembles. The unfathomable danger of being near danger and not knowing or not caring how dull we are in our modern world, how dull we are in the modern church to the grave dangers of walking by ourselves, the grave dangers of cold or no devotions, the grave dangers of skipping church, the grave dangers of avoiding godly fellowship, the grave dangers of pursuing wise and godly counsel, the grave dangers of ungodly counsel, whether they be in person or on television. The concern, brothers and sisters, is not, Satan's plan is not to get you from point A to point C. His plan is to get you from point A to point B. And then it will be easier to get you from B to C. Satan has always known that. When David comes before Saul and says, I'll take out Goliath, Saul says, you're but a youth, and he's been a warrior from his youth. Satan has been a warrior from his youth. And he knows that the way to take you out is not by trying to get you to point C, but by trying to get you to point B. And from point B, he can get you to point C. We live in a world of great atheism and coldness of heart and much false Christianity. And we must sober up to it and plead with God to give us more discernment in that regard. God says right here in this 
uh, letter, he says, tell them the things which are. God says, I know where this is going. What about you this morning? What is the near danger that you're in this morning? And you are. What is the near danger that you're in this morning? Is it duty? Has your understanding of worship and of being with God been reduced to duty and dullness? Is it negativity and doubt and skepticism? Is it hostility or crankiness? Is it lewdness or impurity? Is it greed or covetousness? Or gossip and slander and backbiting? Or self-induced health issues? Or leading anything that leads to sloth and melancholy and despair and pre-depression that depends on you? And there are lots of things that will lead to those things that don't depend on you. Brothers and sisters, we are in a world that fails to grasp the importance of guarding what God has given us, including being good stewards of ourselves. In every manner, we're to pray and examine and seek wise counsel, and we're to address these concerns, whatever it is that is causing us in this regard. Finally, he says this back in your text in chapter 2, verse 5. He says this, Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Remember from where you've fallen. God sends King David that beautiful, simple story in the person of the prophet Nathan. And he tells him that beautiful story about a rich man who had a lamb, uh, had uh, uh, lots of lambs, and a poor man who had only one. The rich man has a guest who comes, and the poor man, the rich man takes the poor man's lamb and sacrifices it for his guest. And King David is outraged at the idea that this rich man would actually do such a horrible thing to somebody else. And then Nathan says, it's you. And David responds. David responds appropriately. Verse 4 says, But I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. David remembers his humble beginnings. David remembers the goodness of God. David is mindful of the persons of God. David is mindful of the holiness and the rightness and the wisdom and the goodness of God. And when it is brought to his attention, David repents. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. What did you do when you first came to Christ? I'll tell you two or three things that you did when you first came to Christ. And if you didn't do these things, you probably didn't come to Christ. You attended church every opportunity you had. You attended church every opportunity you had. You even went to churches that you weren't, maybe they were some sketchy churches, but somebody invited you to them, and you're like, yeah, I'll go. Are they going to preach God's word? Are they going to sing the praise of the Almighty? Yeah, I'll go. You attended to the preaching of God's word. You attended in personal devotions. You read God's word. You couldn't get enough of it. Brothers and sisters, hear this. If that doesn't sound like your conversion, there's a good chance you weren't converted. The children of God, once God does a work in their heart, and then they discover that God actually speaks to us in His Word, that it's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and that God is not a set of rules, not just mere truth, but is persons, the child of God is elated to discover that. And through reading the Word of God and in praying with God in personal devotions, the child of God spends time with God and is strengthened and encouraged on a daily basis. And that's a vital part of the first love. But he says, remember from where you've fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand. Well, what would repentance look like? Well, I put it in the bulletin for you once again. Look on the back of your bulletin. Question 76 at the bottom of your bulletin on the back. What does repentance look like? If God has pointed out to us something here in the Word of God, if He's pointed out to something this morning that we have lost our first love, What would it look like when he calls us to repentance? Well, what's the first thing it says? Repentance unto life is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God. So what is the answer? The answer is to come to God and say, God, I believe that that is true. What Bob said this morning, I think that's true about me. I think I have lost my first love. I I don't think I am walking with you the way I was walking with you before. And it isn't this. It isn't I'm going to do better. Although it might include that to some extent. That's not what it is. It is crying out to God, God, you do this. You 
Do whatever is necessary. That's the prayer. God, you give and you take away whatever is necessary. That's the prayer. When you're under conviction of this and you recognize the truth of this, then you are willing, that phrase, all on the altar, you put it right out there. God, you do whatever is necessary. You take whatever needs to be removed that is distracting me. You move me. You do whatever needs to be done in my life, in my family, in my marriage, in my work, in my finances, in my housing. Whatever needs to be done, God, you do it. Repentance unto life is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God, whereby out of the sight and sense not only the danger, but also the filthiness and odiousness of his sins. Hear this. Some of you have heard here this morning this sermon and have no sense of the danger. But a work of God's Spirit gives us a sense of the danger. Not only the danger, but the filthiness and the odiousness of our sins and the ingratitude of our indifference and of the neglect of the persons of God. And upon the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, he so grieves for and hates his sins as that he turns from them all to God, purposing and endeavoring constantly to walk with him in all the ways of new obedience. Brothers and sisters, if you haven't memorized this, memorize this and reflect upon it. Memorize scripture and reflect upon it. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. He says, remember from where you've fallen, remember the goodness of God and cry out to God. Don't settle in like so many others that you've seen and that you've done in the past, but cry out to God with a holy unrest. I want to close this morning with a quote from Matthew Henry, just absolutely remarkable. Remarkable quote from Matthew Henry on this. Matthew Henry is pretty remarkable on anything that he has to say, but on this it is just stellar. The verses again, four and five, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Remember, repent, do. Do the deeds you did at first. Here's what Matthew Henry says. Those who have lost their first love must compare their present with their former state and consider how much better it was with them then than now. How much peace, strength, purity, and pleasure they have lost by leaving their first love. How much more comfortably they could lie down and sleep at night. that ring a bell with anybody here this morning? How much more cheerfully they could awake in the morning. How much better they could bear afflictions. How much more becomingly they could enjoy the favors of providence. Meaning whatever comes my way, I roll with it because God is on the throne. How much easier the thoughts of death were to them. How much stronger their desires and hopes of heaven. They must repent, Matthew Henry says. They must be inwardly grieved and ashamed for their sinful declension or backsliding, we call it. They must blame themselves and shame themselves for it. When's the last time you heard that in a sermon? Matthew Henry says, go out and talk to yourself. Go out and have a walk. Go out and have some time with God and acknowledge where you are before God. And plead with God. For a transformation, they must blame themselves and shame themselves, he says. And humbly confess it in the sight of God. And judge and condemn themselves for it. They must return and do their first works. They must, as it were, begin again. Go back, step by step, till they come to the place where they took their first false step. They must endeavor to revive and recover their first zeal, tenderness, and seriousness, and must pray as earnestly and watch as diligently as they did when they first set out in the ways of God. One last illustration, and I'm done. In Pilgrim's Progress, in Pilgrim's Progress, 
Christian stops in the arbor of sweetness, which is placed there by God for the refreshment of his believers on their way to the celestial city. And he refreshes himself at the arbor of sweetness. And then he takes it too far and he becomes slothful. Finally, he wakes up to the sloth and he begins on down the pilgrim's path toward the celestial city. And after he's gone several miles, he realizes that he lost his scroll, which was given to him at the wicked gate or at the foot of the cross. And he recognizes, I cannot go on without it. The scroll is his first love. I can't go on without it. I can't go on without it. And so he says, I have to go back. And so he goes back. And while he's going back, that's what Matthew Henry just said, go back to the very first place where you realize you've lost your first love and deal with that and plead with God in that regard. Christian says this. It says that he rebuked himself a thousand times for being a fool because now he has to cover the same ground three times. He left the arbor of sweetness. He goes several miles and realizes that he's lost it. That's one. Now he has to go back to the arbor of sweetness. That's two. Now he has to come back and repeat those same several miles. That's the third. He rebukes himself a thousand times, it says, that he now has to cover the same ground three times. But listen, John Bunyan puts that in there for a reason. Because that is us. That is us. And Christians are eager to regain their first love. Will you pray with me, please? God, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would not allow us to that you would not allow the evil one to come and grab the word that's been sown and that it would just simply just take off. But rather, God, in your mercy, that you would deal with each one of us individually. Bless us, God, with Holy Spirit conviction and Holy Spirit guidance about the specifics in our individual lives. We pray this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand to receive the blessing of God for the people of God? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forever. Amen.